Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. When the Falklands crisis broke out 40 years ago this month, there was virtually no British intelligence about the threat the Argentine military posed. Basic threat assessments from the Ministry of Defence were almost non-existent. This meant that so much of the intelligence work had to be compiled on the job, on that 8,000 mile journey from Britain to the Falklands. I'm your host James Rogers, this is the Warfare Podcast, and joining us today is Nick Vanderbilt. Nick is a British veteran of the Falklands War, who was one of the first intelligence officers to land when Britain retook the islands. His first-hand account is fascinating, providing us with all the in-depth details we need to understand the pivotal importance of that intelligence work that was undertaken. Enjoy. Hi Nick, welcome to the History Hit Warfare podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you very much indeed. Good, good. Where are you in the world? We live in Somerset, not far from the coast, in UK. Ah, a wonderful part of the world, but somewhere that's been pretty windswept recently. How did you do in the storms? We battened down and then managed any problems that were going to come down the road. But we were expecting it, so therefore if you're expecting it, then you just got to deal with it. So it's as simple as that. Others have got worse off than us, I must admit. Yes, well, you prepared. That's the key thing there. Perfect. Well, it's in this month, in April 2022, when this podcast goes out, that we are marking 40 years since the start of the Falklands War. That moment in 1982 when Argentine troops invaded the Falklands, rapidly overcoming the small garrison of British Marines at the capital, Port Stanley, before, of course, ultimately being overturned and defeated. And we're here to discuss your role in the war, which started pretty quickly, didn't it, Nick? This isn't something that you had time to adjust on the journey over, on the 8,000 miles over to that part of the world. Instead, back in the UK, you start gathering military intelligence. So perhaps take us back to that time, that initial period, and maybe start by telling us what military intelligence actually is. 
Military intelligence is simple. Everybody practices intelligence and essentially two elements of it. First of all, it's a collection of information on an enemy or indeed a friend or a neutral person or indeed a country. And then the other side of life is protective security, which is the element where we're looking to counter any activities from a hostile intelligence service. Uh, the, the sort of thing we talk about here are uh, sabotage, subversion, espionage and terrorism, the bibs and bobs. That's very basically what it is. But intelligence in military intelligence is normally referred to as operational intelligence because it's all to do with operations. And it's essentially, you're always collecting information on anybody you need to, but there will be occasions, as happened in 1982, when we got caught out. I happened to have spent the winter in Norway in 1982. I spent two months out there. And then on my winter warfare training, and one or two other bits and bobs, indeed involved collection of intelligence along the border in Norway. And I got back, I think, on the Friday or whatever it was. We knew things, things were happening in the South Atlantic. We weren't sure what was going to happen. You couldn't never trust, frankly, anybody in some parts of the world. And by chance, I was in the commando brigade intelligence section. I wasn't a commander, I'm, I'm a soldier. I had agreed with the color sergeant in the intelligence section that we would just begin to collect information on the Argentines, just as a matter of interest, as an exercise, if you like. So when I got back and went to work the following day on my very bike in Plymouth, within 15 minutes, I was called forward by the chief intelligence officer or the intelligence officer of the brigade headquarters, who said, we are now on standby, ready to move. I said, well, when? And he said, we'll let you know. So we then swung into action. I had a really good intelligence section. They were all Royal Marines bar one or two. None of them had actually done any intelligence training apart from two. And therefore it was all very, very new. But I was the expert, if that's the right word. I was a staff sergeant at the time. I was in the intelligence corps. And therefore people looked to me to discuss how are we going to manage this intelligence and indeed manage the security and what do we need to know and how are we going to get our operating procedures working properly. And they're exactly the questions I'm going to ask you now, Nick. How do you get something like this off the ground from scratch? I mean, I can't imagine there were quite considerable files on Argentine forces, and I can't imagine that you had that many Spanish speakers at the time. So how do you begin an operation like this? How do you begin to gather intelligence on a conflict that's raging so far away against a foe that you haven't really had to fight before? Well, first of all, we had no information on the Argentines anyway. Our role was in Europe. In the wintertime, our role was in Norway and in other parts of the year, it was in other parts of Europe. It wasn't really anything to do with Argentina. The only thing that we had in Argentina was a small band of Marines, which you mentioned as almost a company's worth of Naval Party 8901. But we had nothing, frankly. Now, if this had been a military side, if you went to West Germany, you would have found everybody just throwing information at you because we had a well-organized intelligence organization that couldn't be, to be said for the point we were going to go for. So really, we just put our heads down, we used our imagination, and we said, anybody got a good idea, let's have it, and we'll take it from there. So we sent one of our Royal Marines off to Plymouth Library where he collected as many of the Janes volumes of military equipment and things like that as he possibly could and he could talk his hind off his leg off a back donkey so that wasn't a problem with him our spanish speakers were going to be an issue i had spent in 1980 i think it was 
six months in Belize, in, in Shanti, Europe. And part of that involved a four-week course with London University on how to speak Spanish. The key issue on that particular issue was we would be speaking Spanish, not Castilian Spanish, as in Spain, but the type of Spanish you would find in Central Europe anyway. We then put the word out, does anybody around here speak Spanish? And they came out the woodwork, frankly. There's one guy who had been driving lorries for the last 17 years, and he came from Gibraltar. So we got hold of him. There was another chap who we weren't too sure about because his Spanish was rather Castilian. But nevertheless, it would be useful, whatever happens to say. But as we went along, when we began to deploy, if that's the right word, people would come forward or would hear about somebody. Then we'd go and talent spot them and say, look, would you like to come and join our intelligence section? It's terribly interesting and all the rest of it. And invariably they said yes. And thank God we did. It was fortunate. Oh, wow. So when did you start getting intelligence about what was going on over on the Falklands Islands? Were you able to ascertain about how the occupation was going, how the people on the Falkland Islands were being treated in places like Port Stanley, in Goose Green, in East Falkland, Port Howard, Fox Bay, West Falkland? Did you know what was going on? The only source that we had was the BBC or radio stations. But again, we had to find the radio station where the BBC was good for us because it was English. We hoped they were telling us everything was accurate. We could never guarantee that. So that's where we started, frankly. It was just on the radio set. So we listened to the radio set and indeed the television. Television is a great thing to have because you then begin to see images. From those images, you then begin to identify equipment. And if you can identify equipment, you can identify units. You could also identify most of the armoured vehicles had an emblazoning on the side of the vehicle. Therefore, we could use that as, that must be marine infantry or gunners or whatever it was. So quite literally, we were also having to pack not only our kit from the equipment within the section, but also our personal kit. Bearing in mind, we had no idea how long we were going to go for. We knew what personal kit we were going to need as opposed to the personal kit we were going to discard. Because bear in mind that the South Atlantic at that time of the year was winter. And therefore, we needed all our winter warfare clothing. Very fortunate, my wife had cleaned all my kit when I got back from Norway. So I was ready to go, frankly. Most of it was clean clothing to some extent anyway. So it's almost as though you're going to go on holiday. You collect what you need and discard what you don't need. It's as simple as that. Bearing in mind that whatever was going to happen, that if and when we landed, what we would have will be on our backs. And this then becomes, this is not funny sort of thing, because your Bergen can get quite heavy because you don't actually have just your kit and your Bergen. You're often given two or three hundred rounds of ammunition, maybe, or radio battery or something in addition that needs to be carried. Now, Brigade Headquarters was fortunate. We used to have a thing called the BB202, which was an over-snow vehicle. And the intelligence section, we had our own BB202 with our own driver. And therefore, we use that as our command post. And we would try and avoid anybody carrying anything and just chuck it in the back of the BB-202. But obviously, they'd still be carrying things around their waist for ammunition and their normal webbing, which nevertheless can get quite high. So really also a case of, this is what we do on exercise on Salford Plain. By the way, we're going to do this in the winter and 8,000 miles away. And so we had to avoid making mistakes. We knew we would but we had to try and cut down every, you know, we had to look at every angle and then recognise that if we'd made a mistake or we'd left something behind, tough. 
we would have to deal with it. But the key issue was to make sure we had the information, all the information that we had, we took with us because we thought if we were going to go down south, we were going to go on board a ship, then we would have time to sort ourselves out and get an organisation going. So when did you find out that you were going to be deployed and that you had to undertake that 8,000-mile journey? I got to work on the Monday, and I think by this Saturday, I think, I'm not quite sure, it was about six days anyway, we all piled into these buses in Plymouth, were driven to Portsmouth, and there was HMS Fearless, which everybody loves, it's a great ship. And we had done an exercise on Fearless in the autumn, so Marines most certainly were familiar with HMS Fearless, Mere soldiers like me were not. So we were having to get used to everything that happens on board a ship. And I think it was around about six days, something like that. So it really was a crash move. And this was the second longest amphibious operation from home base to objective in modern military history. So tell us about that journey. Were you able to use that time to continue to gather intelligence, to build a picture of what the enemy was going to look like when you finally landed? Yes, we were. On board HS Fairs, there's an area called the Amphibious Operations Room, which is essentially a command post. And so they put the intelligence section right in a quite a small room, in fact, a bit too, much too small room, alongside the Amphibious Operations Room. We always had a Royal Marine in the AOR, the Amphibious Operations Room, who would be there to support the staff, the marking maps and one or two other bibs and bobs. But as we left UK, then things went slightly awry because a lot of the information we were receiving, we were not meant to see, because it was highly classified. And our main problem was to solve that problem. And so we advised um, a couple of people, a couple of officers, and they dealt with it. And eventually we were receiving information from the Ministry of Defence. That's what it said on the notebook anyway, from the Ministry of Defence. And that used to come in on a regular basis. And that was where we're getting practically all our information. Sometimes information came via the ship when the ship had a radio on board, a radio that people used to listen to, and believe it or not, that was helpful. But anybody we thought were going to be useful, we would tap into. And then in those days, there were no computers. So everything was written down. Where we were collecting this information, we were logging it, we were recording it. Every evening, we prepared what's called an intelligence summary of the information that we have which was then circulated to key officers within the command post. And of course, I'd always introduced questions from the readers because a lot of them were, were not familiar with what was going on. So we became, if you like, a bit of an information point as much as anything else, not only for the officers, but also what might be termed as the other ranks on board the ship, the soldiers, sailors, and indeed airmen, because they also needed to know what was going on as much as we possibly could. So we really were what might be a bit of an information centre. But any piece of information you have, you then have to grade it for accuracy and how valid that information is. So we began to have quite detailed information about the Argentines. What was difficult was to determine any uh, tactical operations because they were essentially static. We weren't getting any information from the Falcons anyway. So it was always going to be a bit of hit or miss on the tactical side. Was there anything that particularly worried you as you were gathering this intelligence? Was there something that gave you a pause for thought that you had to face in terms of the Argentinians themselves? Or, of course, this is the height of the Cold War. Was there any worry that you would have some interference on your journey on the way over there? Yes, it was always going to be an issue. The Soviets most certainly were snooping around. 
a couple of times, the auxiliary gathers of intelligence says, AG, I shits. We were aware of them. We could see them on the horizon. We knew they would be doing this sort of thing. But I think the key issue is we assume everything is a risk. And therefore, bearing in mind on board the ship, it was a closed society. I'll come on board on the other ships in just a short while. So it was a little bit of a closed society on board the ship of nobody was going to get the information. What are they going to do with it anyway? Because they were on board a ship. But there was nothing particularly worried us except that we were still deficient on anything on tactics or indeed on strategy. You can gauge something from strategy by the way any army or indeed the Argentines deployed, and that helps us quite a lot. But tactical information is a little bit difficult. But we think we'd probably pick that up from other sources once we've got offshore anyway. But certainly I was not aware, and I don't think any of us were aware of any others snooping around except for the Soviets, but that was expected. And the Royal Navy were used to dealing with that sort of thing and were very good, frankly. And what do you mean by the Soviets here? Do you mean that you were being shadowed on the journey over? Did you spot Soviet ships that were potentially keeping a watchful eye on Royal Navy activities? Yes, absolutely. I mean, as much the same way as any, I was going to say the Royal Navy, but any Navy, any decent Navy will be sleeping around, particularly when one an army or an organisation deploys. That's natural. We do it when we go shopping, we loop around to see what's there. It's exactly the same. It's no different. It's all in business gathering intelligence. It's how you deal with it that's the issue. And how do you prevent any breaches of security? And you can do that on board a ship because it's a close society, as I said earlier on. But yes, the Soviets were there. The Argentines also had a screen of vessels between Ascension Island and the Falkland Island. One of those ships came quite close to us in Ascension Island and was, all, and was seen off by the Royal Navy. We expect French people to come along and have a look to see what we're up to. Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us at the hotel. And I've never seen anything like it in my life. Imagine being used as a human shield, put in the line of fire. We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are. That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history. We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there. Subscribe now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So you could most palpably feel the tension starting to build as you got closer and closer to the Falklands. And am I right in thinking, Nick, that you were one of the first intelligence officers to land when the mission to retake the Falklands began? When we got to San Carlos Water, we knew we were going to land. I hadn't landed from anything, a ship like this, and so it was all very, very new to me, and rather exciting, frankly. I hadn't expected to do it. Was I the first? No. There were others uh, ashore before us. I won't necessarily say that they were involved as my cause in Intelligence Corps, but I was the only Intelligence Corps, or Intelligence Corps matters, in the brigade. For me, I had a huge responsibility to make sure that what I did represented my call. It's very easy to be a little bit cadaisical about it. But I made it very important for my colleagues that I had certain skills which were not evident in the Royal Marines or indeed in the commando brigade, which would be of value. Of that, there was no doubt. And I was expecting that, frankly. One of the first to land, well, I landed on the evening of the first day. So the first day was just being, being bombed by Argentine aircraft, which was slightly off-putting. And then just once we got ashore, just swung into action, frankly. And what was your role when you got to shore? I mean, you managed to get to shore in the evening of the first day. So were you there initially, at least straight away, to start processing the first prisoners of war and trying to get any sort of useful intelligence out of them? Yes, I mean, suspects, prisoners of war are, in my view, absolutely crucial. It had been rather undermined in the early 1970s, but I firmly believe interrogation was an important issue. And the answer to your question is yes. I think I did my first prisoner, if that's the right word, on day two, in the evening of day two, when a sergeant was picked up. He was my first combat in prisoner, and it was rather daunting, really, to go and talk to this chap. He spoke good Spanish. (laughs) I spoke sort of Spanish. But I did take along with me one of the interpreters, one of the Royal Marines. And it was important that you establish a relationship with your interpreter anyway. And so it gave us quite a bit of a guidance of how we could treat these people, provided you treat them according to the Geneva Conventions, then you can't go wrong. But sort of starting to beat up prisoners and assault prisoners and things like that is simply not on because it's normally counterproductive anyway. So yes, the prisoners became an important issue for a couple of reasons. First of all, they had been in contact with the enemy most recently and therefore had current information and they could be persuaded to talk, but without breaching any Geneva Convention. So this was where you were able to start to gather some intelligence on the tactics, on the strategies, on the military hardware that they might have. Did any of this intelligence that you gathered early on alter the course of the Falklands War in any way? That's a good question. Yes, that we won. (laughs) That's the only answer I can think of. I don't know just how effective it was, but certainly the information that we were getting from them, particularly when we got to things like Goose Green and one or two of the battles, it was quite interesting to see how 
the intelligence that we were passing to the intelligence officers or indeed the commanding officers was sinking in. And if they're sinking in, uh, they're accepting as a fact of life as part of what they have to do, then it worked. The issue was always going to be for prisoners who didn't want to talk and stuck to number ranked dead at birth. Well, that's actually quite easy to get round just by being decent, frankly. But in the knowledge that you have to have information and you want that information and you're going to get it from hell or high water. And anybody who is inclined not to talk, there are small things can be done just to convince him it would be a good idea if he did have his conversation. I felt the intelligence that we gained, with all due respect, I thought it was very good, frankly, considering the condition under which we were under. I don't know. I was never told and I didn't ask because if I was asked and I got captured, that could be an embarrassment. I didn't ask really which how effective was the intelligence that we received. But my view, it was first class, frankly. And when you were questioning, interrogating the prisoners, did you find that there was a very different standard of resistance between those perhaps more diehard officers and those regular troops, some of which are perhaps conscripts who had been brought into the battle and potentially really didn't want to be there? Yes, without a doubt. That's the nature of prisoners of war. Certainly the conscripts, all their serving in the Argentine for one year. Some of them obviously didn't want to serve but they generally didn't have anything to say. There were certainly one or two, as I said, who were, let's use the word resistance to having a chat with us. But it is very difficult to be a prisoner, frankly. Being a prisoner is a nasty thing to happen to anybody. And there's nothing better, frankly, than a friendly face and a cup of tea. So a little bit of humanity in these very inhumane circumstances can go a long way to getting the information you need. Without a shadow of a doubt. And... One recognises one is going to get people from maybe special forces who generally display, if I can put it like that, or they certainly generally displayed down south, and they made it very evident that they were special forces. But even they, after a time, will concede and will want to talk. But if they're not prepared to talk necessarily, we'll always find somebody who is. And so take us through the battles. Take us through to the point where, well, at one point, I think you had as many as 3,000 prisoners. I mean, how was it like as the tide of the war started to turn, as victory became guaranteed? What was it like processing these prisoners coming through and trying to gather all the intelligence that you could on the regime, on future plans, on any counterattacks that might happen? It must have been chaos, Nick. If it was a chaos, it was most certainly well organised. The first group of prisoners we got were those from Goose Green, and we found the jokers amongst them. And there was certainly, you don't just do all 900. You look for your commanding officer. You look for your intelligence officer. You look for certain people who you can convince to have a chat with you. And certainly it was a little bit of a shock, frankly, when the Argentines surrendered at Goose Green. Do you remember that moment, Nick? Do you remember that moment they surrendered? Oh, yes. Yeah, very much so. We came over on the radio. And then we knew we were going to have to swing into action quite quickly. And we were reasonably well organised and much depended on the battalion itself because I'm back at sort of Brigade HQ and yet the people who are going to be doing the first stage of interrogation will be maybe, maybe, depends on the battalion or unit, the intelligence officers themselves who would have done a course. So you select the prisoners you want to have a chat with and they did it very well, frankly. So you maybe have a look at the 900 you can probably say to yourself, well, about 700 other ranks, probably not worth it at that time, 
but the other 200 maybe we'll have a chat with and we'll soon hone it down to let's say 10 people who we thought would be worthwhile having a chat with which turned out to be the case which included of course the commanding officer of the regiment and that's always a good catch but he had somewhat of a problem because I was a staff sergeant and he was a lieutenant colonel and he didn't think I should be having a conversation with him anyway because we were sort of different classes, if I could put it like that. But that didn't quite work out. He was helpful, shall we say. Can you tell us any of the information that you were able to get from them? Anything about the regime, perhaps? Or was this purely military intelligence that you hoped could be useful for anything that was to come next? At all. I mean, we were not interested in the regime, frankly. We were facing three brigades against our two brigade. Therefore, we were far more concerned in gathering operational intelligence that was going to affect the battle. There were, and you're quite right, there were one or two who wanted to talk about the regime and indeed were prepared to talk about the regime because it helped us understand what this was all about. Because a lot of us didn't really understand why they did what they were going to do because it made actually no military sense. But we weren't really too concerned, as I say, about the regime at all. We were more concerned about operational intelligence, as I've just said. Well, Nick, thank you for taking us through all of these intricate details of military intelligence and how it was gathered in terms of the Falklands War. But now you have to tell us how your war came to an end. When did the Falklands War end for you? I guess it ended once we'd left San Carlos and the brigade broke out the beachhead and began to advance across the Falklands towards Stanley. There was another brigade that just landed behind us, 5th Infantry Brigade, and therefore 3 Commander Brigade took the lead and assaulted the main objectives of Longdon, Two Sisters and Mount Harriet. By this time, we were just confined to our BBs and what was on our backs. It was quite tiring, frankly. It was quite chilly. And you weren't always able to get any rations for one reason or another. Quite understandable. And I'm not complaining about it at all. Well, hadn't one of the supply ships just been sunk, Nick? Yes, correct. That's absolutely correct. The Arctic Conveyor, is that the one? That's one of them. Yeah, absolutely. And so as far as I was concerned and the Lord was concerned, that's war. If these things happen, manage the issue, get on with life. So the brigade then assaulted. Then we were the 5th Brigade was meant to conduct us the following night. But because the Atlantic Conveyor had sunk, the Major General Royal Marines, he was commanding the operation anyway. And he gave 5th Brigade another 24 hours for all sorts of reasons. We weren't really terribly happy about that for all sorts of reasons, not the least of which we were now exposed on the hills. And sure enough, the brigade was bombed by a couple of Skyhawks, which was unusual. I'd not been bombed before, apart from on board the ship. But by this time, we were ashore anyway. And therefore, we moved that night to get out of where we were and not to present a target. And that presented all sorts of issues that night. We were crossing the river when our BB turned over or went on its side across this river. There was the whole business of battles going on, fighting going on, and all the rest of it. And in the following day, the fire brigade then went through. And I think it was on the 12th, I think. I can't remember the dates, I have to say. Anyway, the time came when we heard on the radio, set the Argentines of surrender. And we went, yeah, that's it. You know, we can go home now. And so there was about, I suppose, two or three hours, maybe. Then I was then directed to make my way into Stanley with one of the interpreters because they wanted to get intelligence into Stanley as quickly as possible in order to prevent or want to collect information like documents and other bibs and bobs, cipher maybe, and one or two other bibs and bobs. And so we were helicoptered near Government House, 
myself and the interpreter, we then tiptoed into government house because we didn't know whether the movie was booby-trapped or anything. We had no idea. So we tiptoed around government house, and we found the cipher office, which was good news. So we booked up their cipher and all the rest of it. And we made a note, we need to come back. Because in the command post, they had all sorts of posters and organizational charts, which would be valuable for the future. And then that night, we then found somewhere to sleep, which turned out to be, we didn't know that at the time, but turned out to be the counterintelligence office of the Argentines in Stanley. Now, this is where, when I talk about counterintelligence here, we're talking about, let's call them the secret police. These were the hard-nosed police officers and we just happened, quite literally just happened, say, well, we're going to go into this office. And we took it over. We requisitioned it for the next five days or so, whatever it was. And, of course, all the documents we found and all the stuff they had on the Argentines and all the bits and bobs, we frankly we just stuffed it into a bag and said to somebody, the MOD, here are, this is, <laughs> this is for you. <laughs> because by then, we had been told the Argentines had surrendered and they were going to send the entire Argentine army bar 500 they were going to send them back home, repatriate them. And the 500 the Brits were going to keep was because Argentina had not surrendered unconditionally, all bars, it had surrendered with conditions. And so we spent the next four nights, maybe, four days and nights, and we questioned every single prisoner who was being sent home for any information that we thought might be useful. And this was before they used to go to the jetty, and then once they went through our breeding area, then they would used to get on board a boat, which then took them to one of the ships that were taking these people back to Argentina. And of course, as soon as they knew they were being requisitioned, that was it. They just let record everything. They told us all about the officers who had been nasty to them, officers who had given things like field punishment, and so it went on. And it was a really very tiring five days or so. In the meantime, when the prisoners were being processed onto ships, we were continuing our searches of Argentine headquarters, and maybe one or two of the people we picked up, as well as a small operation in Stanley. What information can the people of Stanley tell us about what was life like under occupation? So really, Nick, although you were doing so much in preparation for the war and gathering so much intelligence, the busiest part of the war for you was as it started to come to an end, because you had thousands of people to process. And then, of course, to learn, like you say, what occupation was like. But that's always going to be the case. If you look at the end of the Second World War, it's different work begins in any liberation after occupation, because people have been through an occupation, which is not a nice place to be. And they're still concerned, maybe, for all sorts of reasons. And therefore, it was important that we least made an effort to unearth anybody who was not being helpful. And what did you learn about the occupation? How were the people on the Falklands treated by the Argentinians? Frankly, they weren't treated too badly. I say that with reservations, because a number of people were lifted and confined to a place where they were under guard. They weren't free. And some people understood it. Certainly the people who were former members of the Falklands Defence Force, they understood this. They'd read it in the books. Of course, when it actually happens, it's a different thing altogether. Whatever you read in the book and indeed in the newspaper is not necessarily the correct thing. But it was a tough time. But fortunately, the trip back on the camera back to the UK for the soldiers was outstanding. It really was. <laughs> 
Tell us about that trip back, Linda. You can't just hint away there. How was that back? It must have been truly feelings of being bloody victorious because you were sent over at the beginning of winter against a much bigger force. Everything, to be perfectly honest, is to say that you shouldn't be winning this. It's a very difficult time to be waging any war. The winter is not the time to do it. So the fact that you'd been victorious in this must have been, I mean, I can't imagine. Well, it's a very good question, frankly, but I think personally, it was very nice and I was lucky enough in my role to see what a victory looks like. I was also very lucky to see what defeat looks like when you are with these gauchos, these conscripts who are prisoners of war, looking very worried, not sure what's going on. Their officers didn't care, blah, 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 blah. When you load a ship with two or 3,000 soldiers or Marines, whoever they are, and say, right, go home. And by the way, we're going to treat you wonderfully well, which is what they did. And it was a great relaxation. It was a great wind down. So we weren't all keyed up when we got back to UK. We were actually pretty relaxed, frankly. So you're able to decompress. I guess that's one word of it. Yes, I guess it is. But it was a very private club. (laughs) (laughs) And we were wonderfully fed. Honestly, really weren't. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. We all had a cabin. This sounds ridiculous, but it was. The ship was ours, frankly. It was just wonderful. And I'm eternally grateful for P&O and the crew of Canberra because they just allowed us just to wind down after a pretty stressful period, frankly. And this was a passenger ferry that had been requisitioned and turned into a military transport ship, or was this a different, something else? This was Canberra. Canberra. This was a liner. A liner. Wow. And it was. And they'd been with us from the start to finish. They'd taken the 42 Commander and other people down to the South Atlantic. They'd been through all the bombing and the air raids in San Carlos water. They'd been through all sorts of other things that went on. And they still had this trip with these 3,000 soldiers or whatever it was on board to deliver us to the key and, and indeed to our families on the quayside. Amazing. Well, Nick, thank you so much for your time and for taking us through this history. Tell us, where can people read more about your experience, your history, and the history of the war in the Falklands? 
Well, I've written about four or five books, frankly. One of them is actually quite an interesting one. It's called Nine Battles for Stanley. A little bit of a story to this, if I may. The Argentina weren't really told about the war at all. And the junta tried to squash it, tried to put to bed. And then I wrote this book in about, I think, 2019 or something, 1919, I can't remember now. And it was then translated by a very good friend of mine in Argentina, Alejandro Imendolora. And he published this book in Argentina. And for the first time, the Argentine conscripts had a book about their war. It hadn't been done before. So the translation went from Britain to UK and it became not a bestseller. I'm not sure about that, but all of a sudden it just hit the market, so to speak. So I've written that and I'm writing a couple of articles at the moment for various people. I do it because I enjoy writing. I don't have any hang-ups about it at all. I just enjoy writing. And so that's it, really. Well, thank you so much, Nick. We're very happy you enjoy writing and we'll pop a link to your book in our show notes. Thank you so much for your time. No problem at all. Thank you very much indeed. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.